I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Madeline Sonic joins me now. She's just published a new memoir, Queasy. It's a terrific uh, book of her uh, years coming of age in the England of the 1970s. Madeline grew up in Windsor, Ontario, but when her father dies, her mother, her and her brother move to the England of her mother's birth. Naturally, it's a, a very different Britain, but for Madeline, there's so much that she experiences that she reflects upon that one could easily spend hours talking to her about the various things in this book. For example, as an outsider, Miss Sonic is able to look at the cultural, political, and historical of Britain and give it the perspective of a North American. And she does so often in the book with a clarity and perspective afforded her with the passage of time. So it's also timely as well. We see with... Uh, such a vivid recall and clarity, the lot of uh, the working class in the 1970s, a time where where, uh, there was widespread trade union unrest, mass unemployment, IRA violence, inflation, and high taxes. We see this through Madeline's work as a chambermaid and meet the friends and workmates along the way, a few who remain in her mind, some who have uh, a formative influence on her life and work. I talked to Madeline about reading and writing and more. Madeline Sonic is the award-winning writer of fiction, short fiction, and children's writing. Her previous volume of personal essays, Afflictions and Departures, received the City of Victoria Butler Book Prize in 2012 and was a finalist for the uh, BC National Award for Canadian Nonfiction and the Charles Taylor Prize. This new book is from Anvil Press. She joined me from Zurich, Switzerland. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Madeline Sonic. Miss Sonic, good morning. Hi. I guess it's good evening where you are. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, you opened the. It's a, as I was just talking before we started. Your book is just a. There's so many things I want to talk about, and it's 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 entertaining. It's it's um, very thoughtful in many places. Um, the title itself, queasy. I mean, people might think that. Uh, uh, might, might wonder what that means. Uh, it's the title of an essay in the book, but um, as the title of the collection itself, I mean, can can one draw say, an inference as to, to what what the book might be about? Say, yeah, um, I, I think I, I chose that title because uh, it was kind of a roller coaster ride. You know, the mm. the whole experience of living in another country and. Um, Having all the experiences that I had, and uh, it, it, it was a kind of queasy-making experience, you know, in, the, in that sense. Um, not not a you know not a negative experience, but just uh, like ups and downs, and you know, fun like a roller coaster, but also kind of terrifying at times. So, yeah, I, I felt that was that kind of summed it up. And it also in that essay that you're talking about. Um, I mean, queasy has a lot of different meanings in the in the in the book. You know, morning sickness that mm-hmm. my mother had, and and then you know, being car sick mm-hmm. like I was, and and also just that whole idea of having something kind of rammed down your throat. Basically, <laughs> right, I think a yeah. lot of teenagers feel that. You know, yeah. like a lot of teens, they 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 have their parents are are just cramming stuff at them and down their throat, and it does it tend to produce that that effect. So, so, so you were in your teens uh, when you uh, ended up moving back to England. I guess your father had died, and so you, your brother, and your mother uh, leave. Was it, was it Canada that you were in? That, that, yeah, you, we, we left Windsor, Ontario, 
and went to Ilfracombe, North Devon, in uh-huh. England, a very small seaside town, um, uh, high levels of unemployment because there's really only seasonal work there. Uh-huh. So people would come to work over the summer, and then they'd usually go away. And um, and so that's where we, we went because my mother's brother was living in Ilfracombe. And, uh, and so she thought, you know, going back to England where she was born was yeah. a good thing to do. She was very nostalgic, and she really believed she was going back to, back in time, you know, to her young womanhood when she danced and everything was wonderful in her memory, right? And yeah, then, yeah. sadly, when she got there, she realized that, you know, it wasn't right for her, and she moved back, and I stayed. Yeah. Had you ever been there before? Um, uh, before we moved there, yeah, I had, we had gone, and actually uh, we had gone a, a little earlier, um, but it, I kind of see it as all kind of tied into the, mm. it was the same thing. It was just we went um, and then uh, we came back and then we kind of, you know, we went we went for good. So, yeah, it, it was, it, 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 it's a, uh, for me, you know, looking back, it's kind of a, uh, how do you put it? It's, it's like a, it was all all of the same piece, mm-hmm. you know. Right, right. Yeah. So the thing is, I'm reading the book and I'm playing the scenes out that you're describing in my head. Um, if, if we were making a movie, say, there'd be a lot of smoke. Um, smoking seems to be um, uh, uh, a part of everyone's life at that time and, and that, that period. Um do you still smoke? No, I don't. And it's funny you should say that because I'm working on something right now, and smoke is another big part of it. But I, I think that's because it was such a big part of, yeah. of you know, of my young life. And um, you know, and, and both of my parents smoked, and my father, he, you know, he smoked like a chimney, and used to lecture us all the time about the evils of smoking and <laughs> how he would have rather throttled us in the cradle. He'd say this with a cigarette in his hand, right? I'd rather throttled you kids in the cradle and ever see you smoke. So, yeah, but, of course, we all, well, all except my older brother, we all smoked. And um, uh, and I, I was able to finally quit um, when I was in my 30s or so. So I grew up, uh, well, I was born in 82, so... Um, I grew up in an era where um, smoking indoors was just starting to to stop, and and um, so when I'm reading the book and I'm you know I'm, I'm seeing you work, say, or uh, going to a pub and and having a beer, um, and then lighting up, it, it, it to me it, it's it's foreign almost, you know. But I mean I watch noir pictures and they smoke all the time, so it, so there there is a novelty part of it. Um, it, it it's such a part of of. Um, the existence, and you do such a marvelous job in incorporating it in various essays and throughout the book because it 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 was such a part of life. And I guess um, did did people I, people knew the, the the ill effects of smoking, but I guess they was that starting to to to, to were they warning kids uh, like a great deal then at that right. point or. Well, you know, the tobacco industry had a really big lobby, right? And I mean, there were. Still, people saying, "Oh no, it's all bullshit." You know, basically, mm-hmm. you know, nobody's going to get sick. Uh, you know, this is okay. Look at all these old men smoking. They're in their 80s. They're still smoking. They're fine. You know, I mean, there was still that. There was still doubt, even though I mean, you know, 
we had the warnings on the the, the cigarette packages, right. you know, mm-hmm. um, and also like the Cancer Society um, had done all these, like even from I think the 60s, had started doing like a series of uh, ads about smoking, you know. Um, I don't know if you remember, probably you don't, the Perry Mason show. Oh um, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Well, you know the um, the 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 Perry Mason sidekick, the guy who's always losing, um, Hamilton Berger, right? I right. Think that's his yeah. Name. Mm-hmm. He he was dying of lung cancer, and he was the first one to do a commercial while when he knew he was dying, oh, and then yeah. they would air the commercial after his death, and he was saying, you know, don't smoke, don't be a loser. I was a loser, and you know, Perry Mason court, don't you be a loser, you know, and this kind of thing. Um, so that was like, I mean, we saw things like that, like even, like I say, in the 60s, but really there was always this kind of doubt, you know, that yeah. um, conspiracy theory. <laughs> right. Or maybe it wasn't the cigarettes that caused the cancer, you know? Yeah. It was something else that, you know, some other thing. I really, you know, when you think about it, it was that idea of bad luck. Cancer was bad luck, mm-hmm. you know, or those kind of illnesses were just, when you got them, they were bad luck. And, uh, you know, trying to, you know, um, connect them to something like that. It's like right now, sorry, I hate to jump ahead like this, but no. sugar, oh, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I mean, right, people are eating, they're still eating sugar, even though all these studies have come out showing us that sugar, you know, causes all kinds of diseases, including cancer. But people will still consume it, and it's still in what we eat, you know, like canned foods, processed foods. Sure. So I don't know. I mean, I think that was a kind of that stage. So when you say that about the 80s, like, yeah, at that point, you know, um, I think that the, the lobby was kind of, uh, the tobacco lobby c- couldn't really do much at that point, I think. Um, yeah, they, they ended up selling sugar. <laughs> What? They ended up selling sugar. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. They went into some other, yeah. other industry. Some right? other but vice, that, yeah. But so, yeah. so so you make a marvelous point about sugar. I mean, I, I can't can't stop eating candy and things like that, and, and I know it's bad yeah. for me. Did, did people enjoy smoking then? Well, it was a, it's an addiction. I mean, and we called it habit, right? Mm, but it's yeah. not just a habit. It is an addiction like any drug addiction, you know, it's like if you don't have it, weird things happen, you know, you get weird and edgy and anxious and, you know, you you get stomach problems and all things like that. You, you have to go through a withdrawal to mm. finally, you know, get it out of your system. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, you know, people people did it they were addicted to it and in in being addicted just like you're addicted to a drug or something you like it you know because without it you you don't feel good you know Mm -hmm. so other than smoking there's a lot of tea drinking in 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 the book Um, (laughs) how do you take your tea Uh, i still drink it yeah but now i'm lactose intolerant so i have to have almond milk in it i Uh, used to drink it with just milk and um, no sugar uh-huh. But yeah, so I still I still enjoy my tea. It, it does tell a, a a lot about somebody about how they take their tea, don't doesn't it? Yeah, I th- I think it does, I, and I think it also tells a lot. You know, the cup, but I think that's probably something oh, I yeah. put in one yeah. of the best 
you know, the kind of cup you choose tells something. And, like, in your life, if you think about all the teacups that you've had, right, that you call your own teacup, you'll know about your own personal evolution by thinking about, oh, when I was, you know, 12, I had this kind of teacup, and then when I was 16, I had this kind. Because it really really does show, I think, developmental patterns. (laughs) I should write a thesis on it, but I know I really think that it really does tell us something, those kind of cups that we choose. Yeah, that's one of the more memorable parts for me was when you get to your aunt's house and um, she tells you, um, or I guess she picked one out for you already, a cup for you. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, 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 um, the idea of a cup that, that, say, a young person would pick as opposed to someone who is older like your mom's age um, or your uncle, um, yeah, and I think, too, it was like that ornateness, you know, mm-hmm. just kind of, I mean, now I would think it, it was just, I don't, it's not, it's very ornate, and it's not really, um, you know, it's just gaudy, really, mm-hmm. the kind of cup that I would have chosen then. I would see that that way now, you know. Yeah, um, yeah I collect mugs, and um, I, I like mugs that have, la- you know, labels on them or, or, or you know certain like a television show mug that you'd see on a tv show set right and um if i if i i don't drink i do drink tea but i don't uh have it at home regularly like most people do like like in in your your uh, uncle's house for example it was it was on all the time Mm -hmm. um but uh, yeah i would i would have it in a mug i guess um as opposed to say but then you go to a chinese restaurant they give it to you in a glass which i find fascinating as well Hmm. Um, anyway, I'm digressing here, but so many yeah. marvelous uh, scenes in your book that that um, that uh, just provoke all these thoughts as to say one's own experience, and uh, um, well, you know the things that I've noticed in in my own life. Say, um, th- th- throughout the book, you deal with um, books that um, you read in your childhood, and you read as you you're growing up and into adulthood. Um, I, I think it's just marvelous when you you think about certain books, and and you understand, say, your own life through the reading of those books. Um, and then when you write about it as a, as a reader, I find that fascinating. Um, does that give you, I guess, a, a reading early on? Does that give you the the sense that you wanted to write, say, growing up? You know, I I wanted to write after my father died, and I. I, I didn't really want to become, I didn't think to become a writer until his death, and I believe that wanting to write was to express this grief mm. that I could not express any, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't express it to anyone. I, I, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't really allowed in my family to express this verbally. It, it, I think it just made everybody too miserable. So, mm-hmm. you know, writing became that. But I think reading uh, allowed me an escape, and when things were rough, I could always become a character and play that. You know what I mean? I yeah. I, I could become a character in the book, uh, and then I it kind of in a way it was a, a defense mechanism. You know that I I then didn't really I didn't have to deal with I could make all this you know which was kind of grueling work that I did you know like very hard work. Um, physically strenuous and dirty work, but 
it, it allowed it to be something more in the sense of um, uh, more 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 fun, you know, or have have a different kind of. Um, it, it, it could make it a mystery in some way, or you know, I was just kind of doing this because uh, because of the plot of some book that mm-hmm. I'd read, you know. Yeah. So so it, it it gave me that kind of outlet, um, and you know, I hate to say it, but even now, I mean, I'm much older, but sometimes I find that helps if I can be a character, you know. It, it can it can help me sometimes in, yeah. in a in a situation so you know i can even do that now you know i can still play play act nobody knows i'm doing it but i can i can do it you know yeah that's what that's what i found just just wonderful in 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 terms of uh, because i don't read much fiction and it made me want to read some of the novels you talk about because it it gave um you um i guess sort of the narrative to clarify aspects of your life that you were trying to understand at certain points in your life right Yes. And then it made you. It made. It made. I don't know if made. It made life easier, but um, it, it's. It had to help, didn't it? Hmm. Well, it made life richer. Yeah. You know, it yeah. made it richer. And I think the worst thing that can happen to you in life is that life is not rich. That life is a drudge. That life is boring. Mm. You know. Yeah. I think that is maybe the worst thing. You know, if you can in, infuse or inject a little bit of richness, then the world's a beautiful place. You know. So the 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 other aspect of your book that you contend with throughout Queasy, um, that, that is just fascinating, is um, this cultural exploration. Um, having you know lived in the United States, having lived in Canada, and then moved to England, and understanding you know the language, understanding the lingo, the vernacular. Um, mm-hmm. That that really helps to grow you as a writer too, doesn't it? Oh, I think so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, was it hard though for someone young to sort of have to navigate a new place like that and try to? I don't know. Fit in's not the right word. I mean, you probably didn't have the accent that that uh, everyone else had, but um, it, I guess it wasn't a. a um, was it a hindrance, say? I mean, did, did people look at you differently because you were from somewhere else, say? Um, you know, some did, but I found there in England that uh, most of the people there were quite open, you know, to uh, Canadian or even American. Like, they they didn't, you know, um, they weren't kind of, uh, they didn't have a prejudice against them. Whereas, as they here in Zurich, in Switzerland, mm-hmm. um the Swiss German people really don't seem to like, you know, <laughs> really don't seem to like a lot of uh, foreigners. And I, I think, you know, you can understand it in that foreigners have come to their country, you know, sure. me being yeah. a foreigner, mm-hmm. and um, and kind of, uh, you know, not their country isn't what it was before the foreigners came, right? So. Yeah. I, I find that a little bit here, uh, and I find it much harder here now negotiating uh, this country because it is where I am in Zurich. It's German-speaking, um, and there are parts of uh, Zurich or Switzerland that are French-speaking and Italian-speaking, but the German-speaking part uh, is, is difficult. And, um, and and you know it's interesting, too. Sorry, I, I, I'm going off on a tangent, but 
um, they speak uh, a proper formal German, but then they also have a, a Swiss German, which is a completely different language, you know. Mm. Um, so, so it's 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 very interesting. I mean, I, I'm and again, it's like this is helping my writing no end because, you know, I'm learning certain words in, in German that are, you know, they say so much more than what, you know, w- certain words that we have. You know, like I'm just thinking off the top, like um, hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it, it, it means something different. It it it, it means to, like to be attached to something. It, it's kind of a uh, a way of thinking of of something or perceiving something in a way that I never would have perceived. Uh, not knowing, you know, not knowing that particular word and what it actually means in this language. So, so yeah, I mean, I think anytime you move anywhere and you speak differently, I think it can help your vocabulary and also change your perception of things. And um, definitely when I went to England, my perception changed drastically of, of so much, you know, and just the country itself, it, it was, I, I, I'm sure I've made mention of this many times in, in the book, um, they were still recovering from World War Two, you know, mm, and, yeah. and you knew it. I mean, they were still singing World War Two songs in music halls, you know. And they were they were still kind of living that experience as anyone who'd gone through that kind of hell and and almost you know lost like the country, yeah. right? Um, that trauma was still very very present, and and that to me was an incredible eye opener because. You know, uh, I mean, I knew about the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. right? And I'd seen some horrible pictures on television, but I'd never actually come face to face with people who had been traumatized during, uh, like a, a number of people. I mean, my mother was because she lived lived through the war, but uh, just that that the whole collective, you know, the whole culture had this kind of war complex that it yeah. was um, struggling with. Yeah, you, you, there's a character in the book, Mrs. Newell, who you worked yeah. with. Uh, you, you, I guess you took a job at one point in in a hotel as a chambermaid. And what was she? The I guess she was the the boss there, right? She yeah, she was the head housekeeper. Yeah, and even even the way she talked and the way she she rallied you all to to work, um, I found just entertaining when you when you when you describe her her patter. and yeah. um, you know it was very Churchillian, and so she was of that era, wasn't she? And and and. That was the the, as, uh, the the aspect of of the the uh, the uh, second war, second world war, um, affecting you, even though you you hadn't lived through it, right? That's right. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure it affected me too through my mother, yeah. but she was just one person, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and she also had a certain kind of. She was very young too during the war, but um, you know, Mrs. Newell was actually, you know, she she was she was. In there, she was fighting. She was, you know, she 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 was in there, you know, doing her bit, mm-hmm. and that that was probably the biggest event in her life, right? That yeah. it ever happened. Yeah, the, the, this view on the British life and British society, even even British history, which you allude to throughout the book, um, is it, just fascinating because it it's. Um, I've never been to England, but it's always interested me. 
um, growing up. And, and so to, to get a sense of what it's like living there is, is just a, a marvelous gift um, in your book. Um, when you um, talk about aspects of history, as you do in, in, in a number of the essays, um, you're obviously informing the readers. Is that fun for you to, to sort of do the, the sort of cultural and historical navigation that you do? I love it. Yeah, I really do. I really enjoy doing that. I mean, I learn so much, you know, when I do that. Uh, and I, I understand so much better what was going on, you know. I mean, because when I lived it, I didn't really know, right, what was mm-hmm. going on. It's only when you go back and you, you really look into the historical, um, you know, the, the social history of the place and look at the newspapers. I really made use of the archives, you know, like, mm-hmm what was what was in the newspapers and what people were talking about and, you know, what was going on. And, and when you start doing that, too, you remember things, too, that, you know, it kind of jogs your memory. Oh, yeah, I remember. I remember this, you know. Um, yeah, so. And and you, you also use the monarchy as a, as a, a way to sort of mark uh, aspects of your life or the, the age of giving, giving us reference to the ages of people. Um, yeah. I guess that's that's such a big part of of um, the mindset in that country, isn't it? I mean, it's the same. I guess it's the same in Canada as well, isn't it? Uh, you know, I I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's the same in Canada any, anymore, right? I mean, maybe once it was. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Every, yeah, every time the, the, there's a there's a royal story, it's always on the, the top of the news on the CBC. Or if they if they uh, if Charles and Camilla are planning to come here in in, in a few months, and and that was oh, really? the, oh. they were talking about that on the news <laughs> this week. And I'm sure when they finally come here, it'll be you know wall to wall coverage on the TV and radio. Right, <laughs> but you know I think it's they're more celebrity, right? Like that's, that's what they yeah. are really more. We're in England. I don't. I mean, they're celebrity, but the bigger part of the monarchy. I mean, they love the Queen, mm-hmm. and it's not really a celebrity. It's just, you know, what she stands for. You know, yeah. um, so I, I, maybe it's a little bit different. Uh, and and you know, um, it, it, what always really struck me as funny there too is that, you know, having worked as a chambermaid and as a waitress and. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was queen or in a girls' school. Just how us working class people, right? H- how many just admired the monarchy? You know, it's like as long as the que- my life is good, the mm-hmm. queen is on the throne. My life is good. You know what I mean? It it it, it gave a kind of. Um, I mean, even though you know, here she is wealthy and. Uh, they have no money, really, to speak of, you know, and they're kind of making ends meet. It didn't matter. I mean, she was worth it because mm-hmm. that gave some form of stability for them, right, to know that the queen was there. Kind of the queen and then God, you know? Right. It, it, mm-hmm. It's like, in a way, it's kind of that. Uh, so not really a celebrity, more of a spiritual kind of uh, thing, but not quite a spiritual thing. You also talk in the book about date rape, about sexual assault. Um, yeah. And, and in terms of writing about that and, and reliving it in a way, how did you find the experience all these years later? Um, well, you know, I, I couldn't understand certain my reaction in some ways, you know, like how, how after the fact... Uh, 
things were. But then, you know, you, you have to understand that this is really the the trauma of of that experience. You know, I, I think writing it helped me a lot with that with the trauma of the experience. And I think if I hadn't written that essay, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I could have actually gotten through. You know fully gotten through the trauma of that experience. I, I think the writing helps get through. Um, yeah. I, I think a lot of times people have traumas and then they just close them off in little rooms and mm-hmm. try not to actually deal with them, you know, and they can maybe get through their whole life and never have to open that door. Yeah. Um, but I'm the kind of person where I really want to open all the doors, you know, and, um, and I did, uh, you know, I did want to deal with that. And I think I, over the years, I dealt with it little by little, you know, incrementally writing a little bit of something here or there, writing about it a little bit of fiction or whatever, and then finally, okay, no, I, I really have to, I really need to write this story, you know. Yeah, and, and, and in a way, I don't know if make peace with it is, is, is the right way, but, I mean, you, you do achieve some something out of the from the process of writing, don't you? Yes, and you notice that story, too. Um, it, it does become like a kind of a spiritual story. It pulls my ancestors in, mm-hmm. you know, my, my, my ancestors who also had experienced, you know, attacks and rapes yeah. and that kind of thing, you know. Um, it, it, it kind of allowed me to relocate uh, the story and, and actually see that, you know, there, I was kind of saved in the situation. I, 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 I was able to be, you know, find some salvation. Um, but I always think of it as, you know, now it's kind of these, these ancestors, you know, helping mm-hmm. me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very powerful to think about. Yeah. Um, the subtitle of the book refers to you as a wannabe writer in in the 1970s. Um, do Do you think you you could imagine then where you are today? Um, I don't know. Um, no, I don't think so. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I, I. I. After After Mrs. Newell, maybe. I mean, she really anchored me. You know, and she uh-huh. said, you know, if you want to write. You got to sit down. You got to write and get rid of these airy fairy notions. You know, you. I really did live so much in my imagination, instead of you know, the reality of what was required, the work that would be required, and all of that. It, it was probably around that time, um, you know, that I realized I, I, if I really want to do this, I have to become serious about it. And, you know, um, Mrs. Newell was a catalyst in that realization for me. And then uh, Judith stares to, I mentioned, closer mm-hmm. at, the end, like at the end, the, mm-hmm. the last essay. She comes at the writer's workshop. She also, uh, you know, helped me a lot. But that's for future volumes. I'll have to write more about her. But it's almost like the helpers came, you know, and... Yeah. Um, when you need the helpers, the helpers come. So uh, it, it did become, start becoming more real to me and, and more realistic um, 
when I when I took Mrs. Newell's advice and, you know, was very honest with myself, you know, and, and yeah. So you're, you're a marvelous storyteller, Madeline, and, and this gift of storytelling. Where do you think that comes from? Thank you so much. I, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, my parents always tell stories, right? Like, they were great storytellers. Um, and I always loved to hear the stories they told about the family and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Um, but usually they wouldn't, like, one, one thing I was noticing is something I'm writing right now about how my father... He never really told uh, secrets about the family, but he would tell stories that were kind of secrets, but always kind of moralistic, mm-hmm. you know, how girls should behave. Because if you behave this way, you could end up like my cousin so-and-so, or <laughs> if you do this, you yeah. might end up like, you know. But I love the stories, right? Or my mother would try to scare me with stories, right? Like, um, you know, about... Uh, it, you know, she knew a little girl who, you know, put her hand in the ringer washer or in the washing machine and it got all mangled up. And, I mean, I would just love that story. And I, tell me it again, tell me it again. <laughs> like, the purpose was to frighten me, right? But it was like, I, I just like to hear these kind of horrific stories. Um, so so I guess in that way, you know, my parents really gave me some some good storytelling um, uh experiences you know they, they told good stories and um although you know again they had a purpose to tell and it never was i never hit me like it should you know i always yeah. took something else from it yeah and the perspective of the, the the passing of time also gives us the, the, i guess the perspective that we need to understanding the stories that we heard when we were younger we hear it in a different yeah. way you know mm-hmm um, yeah. your, your previous book, um, um, uh, was, was, was a collection of short stories, but the, the, uh, the, the other collection, Afflictions and Departures, um, what, what, what's covered in that book? Um, that's co- most of my very young life. I see. To the point where, uh, we're going to, me and my mother are going to England. Oh, no, actually, I think the last, last day in that is when I am in England. I see. Yeah. Okay. So the, the, That's the so last essay. And in, it, it, actually, the last essay, yeah. I had um, very bad luck. This is part of the smoking again. Smoking is all the way through that. And um, uh, terrible um, cough. And uh, I was diagnosed, actually, with um, a TB. Mm. But it turned out it wasn't TB. Uh, and um, and then you know I I got these recurring bouts of this bronchial thing bronchitis, but I continued smoking, right? Like I, I you know, what an idiot, but you know <laughs> I did, I just did. <laughs> well, I can't. I mean, I, I, I so enjoyed Queasy a great deal. I'm I'm happy to to find out about afflictions and departures and want to pick that up, and then uh, of course want to look forward to whatever you've got next. I, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed Queasy and uh, so appreciate you taking the time to talk about it with me today. Congratulations and uh, good luck with the book, Madeline. And thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. Have a good night. You too. Bye.